And go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I cannot tell you how excited I am to start diving in to this letter. Uh, I've, I've told a number of you that last week was the launch week for Christ Bible Church. This, this week is really the launch for me, for my own soul. This letter has so much in it that is so rich, so theologically deep, yet so practical. I love this letter, and I pray that as we study this letter together, that God would do an amazing work in our hearts to conform us into his image. I have four reasons that just right off the top I want to give you for why I want to study this book. We'll dive into Philippians in a little bit, but four reasons why I want to study this letter. Why did I pick this letter? Reason number one, Paul loved the church in Philippi. Paul loved the church in Philippi. Not that he didn't love all of the other churches that he wrote to, that he ministered to, but I would say that Philippi was his favorite church. The church in Philippi, I think, was his favorite church. He loved them. He longed to be with them. He always looked upon them with favor and love. Even in this book, there are barely any places where he has to correct their thinking, correct their doctrine. In fact, there is really no correction of doctrine or theological error that needs to be touched on. It's more very practical issues of unity, very practical issues of some squabbling in the church. So Paul writes to remind them of their unity in Christ, remind them of the fact that they need to be one in him as they already are. But there's no real theological error. This book is not like Galatians. Remember, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, and he just comes out swinging. He comes out saying, you are fools. Somebody has bewitched you. There's no way you've already turned from the gospel. How did you do this? Remember the church in Corinth. He has to write to them about very serious matters of sexual immorality, um, very serious matters of doctrinal error, but not the church in Philippi. Paul loves this church, and I would say, adding to reason number one why I want to study this book, is not only does Paul love this church, but this church represents a picture of a mature church, a picture of a full, complete, growing, sanctified uh, this church just shines as a lighthouse in the midst of the New Testament, and specifically the epistles, as a church that we want to be like. We want to emulate them. I was talking with my daughter in, uh, at breakfast in the morning. We have little dialogues in the morning. I think she totally understands everything I'm saying. Not at all. Um, we have great conversations, and I think it was Tuesday morning of this week, I said, Chelsea, you got to do me a favor. I'm giving you something that you have to do for me. She knows how to say, uh-huh. So she just goes, uh-huh, to everything. I said, Chelsea, you are not allowed to grow up anymore. Not allowed to grow up. Will you obey daddy? She goes, uh-huh. So you all are witnesses. I have the promise that my daughter will not grow up past this stage. And you all know the joy of having little ones and the joy of seeing them at that stage and the phrase that's always thrown out there, growing up too fast. It just goes by too quickly. And so that sentiment is there. Oh, I wish they could stay at that age and that, um, the, all the cute things they do, all the new adventures that they see. But if that really did happen, 
if five years from now Chelsea was no different, it wouldn't really be cute anymore. It would be a little bit disturbing, right? Look and kind of go, why do I still have to change a diaper? Come on. I would look and see there are some problems. Imagine if she was reverting. Imagine if instead of growing up, she started going backwards in her, in her development. See, staying the same or reverting back to old ways instead of growing is not truly a precious thing. And spiritually, it's the exact same thing for us. We need to grow. Let me give you a couple verses. Uh, the Bible is chock full of verses that describe how we need to grow in maturity in Christ. But let me give you just a couple. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. You can write these down and look them up on your own time. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. Leaving the elementary teaching, let's press on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Be, uh, yet be in evil, be infants. Be infants in evil things, but in your thinking, grow up to maturity. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. We proclaim Christ admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man partially complete in Christ? Growing up in Christ? No, we want to present every man mature in Christ. Hebrews 5, verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. We need to grow up in Christ, and this letter contains admonishment or encouragement or challenge and exhortation to a church that Paul loved to excel still more, to keep on growing, to not slow down. It's a picture of maturity in Christ. Number two, this book is all about unity and joy. This book is all about unity and joy. And I think if there are two things that we as a church practically need to hear understand and live out over the course of this season of the start of this church, it would be issues of unity and joy. We are going to come into interpersonal conflict that we wouldn't even have dreamed would happen. We all love each other. We're all friends, right? Just give each other a big hug. But in the coming weeks, months, and years, I guarantee you, we're all sinners. We're going to step on each other's toes. And even though the gospel has shrunk our toes down just a little bit, it needs to keep on shrinking them. We want to get to a place where we as believers have no buttons that our friends can push. We're not there yet. And so I know that I will probably push your buttons. You might push my buttons. Hopefully I'm growing in buttonlessness. <laughs> but we need to be unified. And this letter has specific encouragement to grow in unity. That's really the one thing that this church struggled with. This church in Philippi struggled with unity. It's two women that were kind of squabbling back and forth. And Paul says, you know better. And that's pretty much it. Come on, you know better than that. Love each other. We're going to get to it when we get further into the book. It's not only about unity, which we are desperately going to need over the course of the beginning season of this plant, but it's also about joy. The, the theme of Philippians is really unity and joy. We need to know what joy is. We need to have a rock-solid commitment not to go with the ebb and flow of the circumstances and the happiness that the circumstances might bring in our lives, 
but have joy that would be so deep, so rooted in our souls that no matter what's happening, we can rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say what? Rejoice. Rejoice. My favorite definition for joy is, joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. You have a solid view of the sovereignty of God, and I guarantee you, you can have joy. Because the king is in residence in your heart every second of every day, completely sovereign over whatever life may bring. You can have joy because the flag is flying since the king is in residence in the castle of your heart. And honestly, I think joy is one of the most misunderstood, least preached, least talked about, but most central issues in the scriptures. The word or the verb to rejoice is used over 74 times in the New Testament alone. The noun joy appears 59 times in the New Testament, and it is always used. It's part and parcel to the Christian experience. If you are a believer, you need to fight for joy. Don't fight for happiness. Happiness will come and go. Happiness is just an attitude of satisfaction or delight purely based on circumstances around you. But I can promise you, you will come into contact with tribulation, with trials, with difficulties. And when you do, it's not if you do, it's when you do, you're going to have to remember that God is sovereign, that his flag is flying over the castle of your heart, that you can have joy. Joy isn't based on present circumstances or the things going on around you. Joy is a deep down confidence, unmovable, unshakable, no matter what the circumstance might be knowing that God is working all things together for your good. And so Paul writes to this church with a theme of unity and joy. Number one, he loves this church, and it's a picture of a mature church. Number two, he writes with a theme of unity and joy, two themes that we desperately need to see, comprehend, and live out in our own lives. And number three, this book, roots practical exhortation in incredibly deep doctrine. It's a very practical book, but its roots are in deep, deep doctrine and theology. And I love that, and I think it's important to see that in this book because the entirety of Scripture does this. If we think, oh, that's just head knowledge, that doesn't really do anything, that's just really deep things that I don't really need to worry about, that's for seminary students or seminary professors, that's not really for me because that's just huge, deep doctrinal theological issues. I don't need to worry about that. We're going to miss the fact that the practical exhortations, the commands that Paul gives up here on the top of the soil, cannot be lived out if your roots are not grown down deep into the soil of doctrine and theology. The deeper that your understanding of God, his character, his work, his person, his word, the deeper your understanding of him, the thicker, the, the greater roots, the bigger branches your fruit will grow. You need to have a tree rooted in the deep, weighty doctrine of who God is. And that, that's what we find in Philippians chapter 2. You know that amazing section where we hear that uh, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a man, a bondservant, and a slave, even to the point of death on a cross. We, we identify that as one of the most uh, amazing doctrinal sections in all of Scripture on the matters of Christology, on studying Jesus Christ. But in Paul's mind, he wasn't trying to give a huge dissertation on who Jesus was, he was trying to tell the church, you need to be unified, and your example is this rich doctrine of who Jesus is. So we need to have a practical exhortation from this book that's rooted 
that's weighted, that's anchored in incredibly deep doctrine. There are only 104 verses in the book of Philippians. There's only 104, and yet it is so pregnant with practical application and heavy, weighty theology and doctrine. Last, number four, this book will point us to Christ. That's why I want to study it. This book will point us to Jesus. All of Scripture would do that. This verse contains, or this um, book contains some of the most, uh, if I can use the word, Hallmarkian. Um, they, they're just, they're always on mugs and cups, and you go to any Christian s- store, and Philippians is just all over the bookstore because it has amazing verses. We, we talked about a couple, a couple of them during the Family Bible Hour, right? Amazing verses. I can do all things through who? Christ who strengthens me. We'll get to that. Um, to live is what? Who? Christ. That's what we need to see. We need a picture of Jesus in the first chapter alone of Philippians, chapter 1, the name of Christ or Jesus Christ appears 17 times. This represents a frequency of more than once every two verses. Paul is just bleeding about Jesus Christ. He's just gushing about Jesus Christ. This letter is all about Christ and our church is all about Christ. Christ Bible Church. He is the reason that we are living. And so as we study this book, Lord willing, we will see a picture of Christ that will conform us into his image and change us and be, we will be transformed from glory to glory as we looked at in the Family Bible Hour. So those are my four reasons why I want to study this letter together. So let's dive in. Philippians chapter 1. We'll start with the first two verses today because I want to show all of our hearts how God grew this church a story that might be familiar to you, but I believe that it would be so important for us to stop and camp on how he grew this church, because I see him growing our church the way that he grew the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants, or better translated, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts by writing, I am writing this letter. Paul is writing this letter. Is Timothy a co-author? No, he's not a co-author. He's a companion. Could potentially be writing down what Paul is narrating to him, but he's not writing this letter with Paul. He's not a a second person writing this letter because Paul is going to use from this point forward just first person singular noun. So Paul's the author. Timothy is a friend, a companion. What's interesting about this introduction, there are a couple things that we see that we usually see in Paul's introduction. Slaves of Christ Jesus, a slave of Christ Jesus. But there's one thing that's missing in this introduction, in this greeting, where Paul is identifying himself. There's one thing missing that we normally see, not always, but we normally see when Paul opens up his letters. And that is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Why doesn't he put Paul an apostle? Why doesn't he say, I'm an apostle? Because he doesn't have to. This church is not listening to Paul as he's writing this letter going, we don't know if we want to listen to you. You don't really have anything to say to us, do you? And Paul then would say, no, I'm an apostle sent by Christ himself. I've been commissioned by him to speak to you on behalf of him. Listen to me. He has to do that with other churches that kind of go, should we really listen to Paul? 
not this church. Paul has no need to assert his apostolic authority, if you will. He says, hey guys, I'm Paul. You remember me? I'm Paul. And the church is eager, so teachable to listen, to understand, and to live out the message that Paul is going to give to them. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. My Bible translates that word bondservant. It's doulos. It should be translated slave. We are slaves. Every slave has a master. And if the Philippian church heard we are slaves, then their first question would be, well, who's your master? If you're slaves, who owns you? Who controls you? Who tells you what to do? And so Paul writes, we are slaves of Christ Jesus. He is our master. Once we were slaves of sin, slaves of Satan, slaves to the wrath of God in hell forever. Now we are slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are always slaves. Or to say it the wrong way, we are never not slaves, ever. Every second of every day that we will live on this earth, we are slaves, either to sin or to Christ. Those are the only two options. Those are the only two possibilities. Back then, a slave would, uh, you would either become a slave by three reasons, either by being taken over by a country coming in, taking you over. I guess you could put conquest over that. You could become a slave through conquest. Somebody comes in and they take over you through military action. You become their slave. Secondly, you could become a slave by being born into slavery. If your parents are slaves and you are born, you're born into slavery. Thirdly, you could become a slave if you were indebted to someone. You would either have to go to debtor's prison or you could become a slave of that person until you worked off the debt. We are slaves to sin because of those three reasons. Sin has destroyed us. It has conquered us. It has destroyed every faculty that we have, completely, totally depraved, unable to choose God, We are slaves to sin because sin has conquered us. In the womb, we were already sinners by very nature. We were born into it. We were born into sin. We were never free men or women. We were never free men or women. We were always slaves of sin. And we are slaves of sin because we are debtors. The wages of our sin is death. And so, therefore, we are slaves to sin. What are the ways to get out of sin or out of slavery? What are the ways to get out of it? Number one, you could either earn your freedom. You could earn your freedom by doing various things. Can we earn our freedom from being slaves to sin? No. No. In fact, that's what the church in Galatia struggled with. They thought they could earn their own freedom from bondage to sin. Can we buy it? Can we get out of it? That was the second way that you could get out of being a slave you could buy it. If you had enough money, you could pay your way to freedom. We cannot buy our way out of slavery to sin. The third and final way that you could get out of slavery back then is the only way that we have hope of ever becoming slaves of Christ instead of slaves of sin. And that's that freedom would be granted to you by another. We were slaves to sin, but our freedom was granted to us because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He took the penalty for our sin. He took the wages of our sin upon the cross, 
bore that penalty, bore the wrath of God so that we could go free. And he offers us freedom, freedom to become his slave. He is a good master. And so Paul writes, we are slaves, but we are slaves of Christ, a good and gracious master. Who's he writing to? He says he's writing to all the saints, every single saint in Christ Jesus who is in Philippi. The church in Philippi had grown. We see that by uh, Paul including, including the overseers and deacons. This church had grown. There had been leadership established. This church is already maturing to a point where they have overseers and deacons. They have elders. They have pastors. They have people that are over them delegating the responsibilities of the church. So he says, I'm writing to every single believer in Christ Jesus, who is in Philippi. The city of Philippi back then, in the middle part of the first century, had about 10,000 inhabitants. 10,000 people in the city of Philippi. To put that into perspective, 1.77 million people live in the San Fernando Valley. 40,000 people, over 40,000 people, attended Game 1 of the World Series in Boston last week. 40,000 people. 51,299 people live in the city of Northridge alone. This is why we need to be planting churches. If Paul had to plant multiple churches in Philippi and Philippi only had 10,000 people, then one church or two churches in the San Fernando Valley preaching the good news of Jesus Christ are not enough. We need to get this out. To the saints who are in Christ Jesus, are these patron saints are these dead people that have been labeled saints because of their work no these are believers brothers and sisters you and i are saints not because we're perfect not because we are holy we are called to holiness saints just means being set apart to someone for something the philippian church is set apart to god for the work that god has commissioned for them to do just like those in christ bible church are set apart we are saints We are not saints because we have morally achieved a right standing before God. We are saints because Christ has morally achieved and given us his moral achievement that he paid perfectly on the cross. After living a perfect life, he gave us that life through his death. These brothers and sisters are chosen, are set apart, sanctified for the work of God of Jesus Christ. And specifically, they are saints in Christ Jesus. They're not just holy ones apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, they would not be saints. So they are saints in Christ Jesus. And you and I as well, if we are believers, if you are a believer, then you are in Christ, you are a saint, and you will never be uh, pulled away from Christ. You're always tied to Christ. If you are a saint, then you are in Christ Jesus. Including the overseers and deacons, grace to you, verse 2, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Such a, a normal greeting, one that you're familiar with. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the only way that we can have peace is because grace has come. Paul does not say peace to you and grace. Paul says grace comes through Our peace comes through grace. Grace to you and then peace that comes through Jesus Christ. There is no way that we would ever be able to have peace before the Father if it weren't for the Son. 
so Paul reminds this church, before we go anywhere, know that you have received grace. And because of the grace you have received in Jesus Christ, you have been given and granted peace. And therefore, based on that, I will tell you to live a certain way. But don't ever live a certain way to earn grace. Don't ever live a certain way to make peace. Live that way because you have been given grace and because you already have peace. So he roots this letter in the gospel right off the bat. So he writes to the church in Philippi. How did the church in Philippi begin? Turn to Acts chapter 16. We're going to spend the rest of our time here. How did this church begin? How did this church get going? How does God build not only the church in Philippi, how does God build his church universal? How does he build the church here in the San Fernando Valley? How does he build Christ's Bible church in Northridge? The exact same way that he built the church in Philippi. And it's an amazing story, one that we need to see. Three individuals, all so different, all addressed in a different manner by Paul, but all with the exact same problem and all given the exact same solution. Let's pick it up in Acts chapter 16, verse 13. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. You can put in your mind there, place of prayer is a synagogue, a Jewish place of worship. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. This is Paul. This is Silas. This is also Luke on a missionary journey, traveling. They aren't even wanting to stop at Philippi. They're wanting to go through Philippi to Macedonia. And they need to go through Philippi. They need to go through Thessalonica. They need to get to Macedonia. That's where they're headed. And they're traveling through Philippi. And they stop there for a while. Why? Why does Paul want to stop there? Obviously, he'd probably need a place to stay, maybe some food, maybe some water. But if you look at verse 12, I think you'll see the reason why Paul specifically intentionally stops in Philippi. Verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. This is a big city. This is an important city. This is a city that um, is described as a Roman colony and a leading city. This is a very, very important city. And you see Paul constantly going to important um, cities. I think if the Apostle Paul were alive today, he'd go to L.A., he'd go to Dallas, he'd go to New York, he'd go to Chicago, big hubs where the gospel could just go forth and blanket the surrounding areas. And so Paul stops in Philippi a leading city, a Roman colony, and wants the gospel to take root. But he always, as is his custom, always goes to the synagogues first. He wants to speak to his Jewish brothers to tell them, you are following the wrong picture of the Messiah. You crucified the one true Messiah, the Son of God. And so he goes and he looks for a house of prayer, but there is none. That means there were not enough Jewish men to make up a synagogue, which would have been 10 Jewish males. You need 10 Jewish men to make up a synagogue. There were not even 10 Jewish men that would be able to make up a synagogue in the city of Philippi. Instead, 
there's a group of women assembled speaking about the Bible, speaking about the law. Verse 14, we meet one of these women, and this woman is the first convert in the church in Philippi. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Who is this woman? There are so many descriptions here. She's from the city of Thyatira, so she's not from around here. She's not from Philippi. Ethnically, she would be Asian. She's not from Philippi, but the reason why she's here in Philippi is she's a seller of purple fabrics, which tells us she is very wealthy, very rich. So she has a city in Thyatira that she has a home there in the city. She has a home in the city of Philippi. If she were in our modern day context, it would be like owning you know, a home in LA, an apartment in New York, and a uh, house in Paris. She's got it all. She's got it made. She's rich. She's a, if we can call it this, a fashionista. She loves fashion. She's obviously high up in the industry. She is called a worshiper of God. Doesn't mean that she is saved because she's about to get saved. But it means that she has rejected paganism. She has rejected the notion that there are many gods, there are plural gods, there are a bunch of different gods that we should worship. She's rejected that. And she says, there is only one God, and I want to find out more about him. And so she's listening. She's listening. And what happens? The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Who opened her heart? Was it Paul's amazing speaking skills? No, the Lord opened her heart. The Lord did the work. How does God build his church? By opening the hearts of those who don't believe. God builds his church by opening the hearts of those who do not yet believe. By pulling back the veil in 2 Corinthians 4. The veil that is covering their eyes. They can't see, they can't comprehend. And God pulls that veil back so they see the glory of Jesus Christ They see their need for a Savior. They see that in their sin they are condemned to die and under the wrath of God. But through Jesus Christ, they can be forgiven. Lydia is one such woman whose heart was already being tilled by God, already being worked on so that she's reasoning about the Scriptures and talking about these things. And Paul just randomly shows up. He's looking to go to a synagogue, and instead he finds himself at just a little K. Arthur Hebrew precept Bible study. I mean, that's where he is. He's just hanging out, and boom, here's a little Bible study going on. But they don't quite know what they're learning and what they're studying. And as he speaks, he reasons with her, and God opens her heart. We're going to find people like this all the time. We're going to find people like this all the time that are questioning, that have thoughts, that are trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what is this religion of Christianity? What's going on? I don't quite understand it, but I know that there is a God. There has to be a God. I see his handiwork. There has to be something out there, and I want to know him more, but I don't know what to do. Similar to Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I want to know, but I don't understand this book. And you and I will be able to speak with words that are reasoning, intellectual, speaking to their mind and grabbing their heart, and then God will do the work to open. Not everybody's going to be like Lydia. Some people will hear and say, no, I reject it. But God knows. 
God knows he has people in the city of Northridge, in the city of North Hills that are his, that are elect, that he has called to himself. And he needs to do that through our work, through us proclaiming the gospel. God knows. We need to be on the lookout for people like that. I would put her under the category of somebody who is ripe for the gospel. She's just ripe for the gospel. She's ready to hear it. And we need to be on the lookout for people that are ready to hear the gospel. And she responds, verse 15, when she and her whole household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, please come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Of course they'll stay. She's got to have a mansion. This is going to be great. Paul normally doesn't have a place to spend the night. And here he's going to be in a mansion for the night. This is going to be great. So Lydia, the first convert to make up the church in Philippi. But again, not everybody's going to be like Lydia. Right after Lydia's story, immediately Luke takes us in his narrative to basically the exact opposite of Lydia. Verse 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are slaves of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. I love that. The apostle Paul got annoyed. And he turned and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Where Lydia is Asian, this girl is either Roman or Greek, somewhere in that province, depending on where her descendants is, but she's not Asian. Where Lydia is in complete control of everything and totally intellectual and Paul's able to reason with her. This slave girl is impoverished, enslaved, exploited. Can't reason with her. She's demon-possessed. Where Lydia is older, probably older, this is a little girl. And as in control as Lydia was, this girl is the exact opposite out of control. But you'll notice Paul does not go to her and say, hey, guess what? Um, Lydia over here, we had a Bible study. She came to Christ. So guess what? I'm going to do a Bible study on Saturday morning about crazy, and you should be at that Bible study for crazy people. Doesn't do that. Doesn't reason with her intellect. Rebukes the spirit. Come out in the name of Jesus Christ. There are going to be people that we run into like this slave girl that we're not going to reason with them about the things of the Lord, reason about uh, them with the gospel. We need to rebuke them. We need to confront their sin. I think of such people that Ray Comfort usually runs into uh, that you kind of see in the DVDs or you see online where he runs into people that are totally antagonistic over the gospel and he just preaches the law and then preaches Christ, shows them their sin and says, you need to be saved. There are going to be people like Lydia that we can have much more of a rational conversation and then there are going to be people like the slave girl that we need to come across and say, you need to repent. Please come to Christ. Please see your need for a Savior as I show you how we are all sinners, have all gone astray and turned to our own way. How does God build his church? Through people that have it all together, seemingly, totally in control, totally rational, and through crazy people. 
through irrational people. I want to ask you to raise your hand, but are you in the crazy, crazy crowd? Who would be in the rational and who'd be in the crazy? If we're honest with ourselves, then I'd be interested to see who calls themselves a, a crazy one. This slave girl is crazy, and yet God grips her. There is nobody outside of the reach of God's grace. Amen? There's no one outside of the reach of God's grace. So how does God build his church? Through diversity, through bringing many different people from many different places in life to the exact same body, to the exact same place. He builds his church by opening people's eyes, by rebuking their hearts. We don't find out whether or not this girl became a part of the church in Philippi. We really don't see anything else of her. Uh, The story moves because there's a huge ruckus and uproar over this demon coming out of the slave girl and the masters losing their fortune because she was fortune-telling, and so now they've lost their business, and they go to throw uh, Paul and Silas into jail. There's a huge uprising, and so we kind of lose track of where this girl lands. But I like to believe that she is the second member of the church in Philippi. In my own sanctified imagination, I'd love to see her holding hands with Lydia as Lydia disciples her and says, you know, I didn't know what the gospel was, and I was struggling to believe, and I was struggling to see, and then Paul came, and God opened my eyes, and God did that with you in a totally different way. It's a very different context. It's a very different setting, but God did the exact same thing with you. Let's pursue him with everything we've got. So we meet Lydia. We meet the slave girl. Thirdly, and and finally, we meet this jailer. You know the story. Uh, Verse 23, we'll pick it up there. Uh, When the crowd had struck them, Paul and Silas, with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer, we meet this man, the jailer, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, if you're like me, I immediately hear stocks and I think of, you know, the wooden bar, hands in, head in, and people throw tomatoes at you. That's what I think of when I think of stocks. It's not the kind of stocks that were around back then. Stocks back then, what you would do is um, you would have somebody, kind of like when uh, your older brother used to wrestle you and have you cry uncle, put your elbow and your arm behind you and try and twist it. Uh, A a jailer would do that to you and twist you and contort your body into weird positions and then lock you with torture devices in those positions so that your body would start seizing up and cramping up, but you couldn't move. It was torture. It was painful. It wasn't just merely degrading like the stocks that we think of. And the reason why I tell you that is because if they're just sitting in the stocks, just kind of hanging out with a tomato thrown at them every once in a while, then their singing doesn't become as profound and as powerful. But if you realize that their singing is not just praise God from whom all blessings flow, their singing is through clenched jaws, with arms and legs and hands and a body that is just contorted in the weirdest twists and shapes and they can barely get the words out and yet they're still singing. About about midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, the very God that the crowd hated because that God delivered the slave girl from the demon. This crowd hated God. This jailer hated God. And if you hated God or the gospel back then, the Apostle Paul would be the most frustrating human alive. You, you threaten to kill him, and he says, I'm sorry, to die is gain. <laughs> you lose. 
You threatened to torture him. I'm going to stick you in the stocks. And he says, I'm sorry, I don't count the present suffering as worthy to be compared to the future glory. You can't win. You cannot win. Richard Sibbs says of everyone who's united with Christ, including Paul, that Christians, believers, can never be conquered. When Paul writes in Philippians that you and I need to rejoice and rejoice always, he's not speaking as somebody in an ivory tower you know, with a fluffy pillow and a little dog that gets, he gets to pet. That's not where Paul is. Paul has been here. Paul has been tortured for Christ. Paul has been put into stocks, and yet he still had joy. He chose joy. So they're singing. Paul and Silas are singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That's key, because we're going to see the prisoners in a couple of verses. Suddenly, verse 26, there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. So everybody's running free, running wild. Crazy people just, we're free. Criminals, we're free. Verse 27, when the jailer awoke, we already find out this guy is probably not the best at his job. Probably doesn't care a great deal about his job. This is a guy that just wants to clock out, go home, and watch the game. This guy just, eh, I do my job because I do my job. Whatever. He's asleep. He awakes. He sees the prison doors open. He draws his sword, not to kill the prisoners, but to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Why is he going to kill himself? Because if you are in charge of a prisoner and that prisoner escapes, you will be executed. You will die. You'll pay with your life. But, verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice. That, that tells me, remember Family Bible Hour, we were talking about observation. Simple observation. He didn't cry out with a quiet voice. He cried out with a loud voice. Why do you think he had to cry out with a loud voice? Either the earthquake is still going, or there is so much pandemonium going on in that, in that jail cell, in, in, in the whole jail. Everybody's running around. You know, big Bubba's yelling to Tommy, come on, we're free. Let's get out of here. And Paul says, stop. Verse 28, do not harm yourself, jailer, for we are all here. Why in the world would a convicted murderer, rapist, kidnapper, I mean, you put, you put a long list together and you put that individual in this jail. Why would that person stay when his jail cell flies open, that door flies open? Why would he stay? I submit to you he stays because he was listening in verse 25 to Paul and Silas praying and singing. All the prisoners are still there because all the prisoners were listening. All the prisoners heard and all the prisoners, probably in stocks too, probably having been tortured, probably cursing at their jailers, now say, I cannot believe that this man, these two men, in the midst of suffering, acted this way. Mark this, you are always suffering with somebody watching. You and I are always suffering with somebody watching. And your testimony to the watching world can speak louder than your words. Paul says, don't harm yourself, jailer. We are all here. 
And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household. He baptized all of his household because Paul went to his house to preach the gospel to his whole family, and his whole family got saved. And he brought them into his house, set before them food, rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. There's always going to be somebody witnessing your suffering and watching how you react, how you act, how you react. And this jailer, very different from the slave girl and from Lydia, he's probably in the middle of the spectrum. He's basically a blue-collar ex-GI, manning jail cells, trying to do his job, then he'll clock out. He's middle class. He's right in the middle. And yet Paul speaks the exact same words of the gospel, but he doesn't reason with him first with his words. I believe he sets the stage with his example. We'll come into contact with people like Lydia where we speak the truth and reason with their intellect and they hear and they believe because the Lord opens their hearts. We'll speak with people that we need to confront their sin and rebuke them and say, stop, repent, turn now. And God will open their heart as well. And there are some people that we won't even have the opportunity to speak to until maybe five years down the road, but we're going to be preaching with our lifestyle. And as we go through suffering and trial and as we live in front of them, we will be preaching in such a way that God will get their heart ready, mold their heart, get them ready for the moment that they come to us and say, what do I do? Why did the jailer go to Paul and Silas? Maybe he heard them singing as well. He heard their command over the entire jail and said, something's different about you. And Paul's able to say, I'll tell you who it is, it's Jesus. We're going to come into Lydia's. We're going to come into slave girls. We're going to come into the jailers. We're going to come into these people. That's how the church in Philippi begins. Not quite the dream team of church planting, would you say? Lydia, jailer, slave girl, trio. Hey, have fun. Plant a church. Yet Paul says, that's all I need. Because God builds his church not through numbers, not through masses, but through the gospel. And one of of the things I love about the people that he puts into the church in Philippi, these three people, is their diversity, their differences. If we're honest with ourselves, and if we're honest with ourselves, we aren't usually honest with ourselves, but if we're honest with ourselves, we tend to do life with people that are like us, right? People that have the same interests, same hobbies, same, same type of season of life. We tend to do life with people that are like us. That's just natural. That's the way that natural relationships are built but friends the gospel is supernatural the gospel is anything but natural so the gospel transcends all lines of diversity all lines that typically would separate and divide the gospel unites so that the entire universe under the gospel from every tribe tongue people people group language nation ethnic group god calls to himself and makes them the church so you and i have the task of going out into this world even in its diversity, going to all sorts of people groups, preaching the gospel, and God will do what he wants to do through our diligence in preaching the gospel. The gospel blows the doors off of our tiny, tidy little safe communes and says, go into the highways and the byways and preach. Preach the good news. How does God build his church? 
He builds his church through the proclamation of the gospel by opening their eyes after he has worked on their hearts and prepared their hearts for the message. He builds the church with incredibly diverse people and he builds his church to create a spotless bride from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. So I ask you, Christ Bible Church, will you have beginnings, will we together have beginnings the way that the church in Philippi began? By going into the world, by preaching the gospel, by being Paul and Silas and Luke to the people around us, no matter what ethnic group they are, no matter what language they speak, no matter where they are in life, no matter if they're intellectual or if they are crazy people. If the only tool in your toolbox is a hammer, then every problem just becomes a nail and you just start beating on it. But instead, we need to be like Paul, reason with one, rebuke one, live a lifestyle filled with examples of gospel grace to another, and God will use us the way he wants to use us. Will you become all things to all people the way that Paul says he desires to do and win people to Christ. My prayer is that he would build Christ Bible Church in the exact same way that he built the church in Philippi. And over the coming weeks and months together, may we study this letter knowing that their beginning is very similar to our beginning. Look at our diversity. Look at who we are and who we could become. Look at all the different stages and seasons of life. People have asked, is your church, you know, just going to be a bunch of 20 and 30-year-olds? Praise God, no. Praise God, no. We need diversity in age, diversity in season of life. We need that. So let's preach the gospel. Let's be so faithful and let God work as he wills. Father, we thank you for your word and this picture of the beginnings of this church in Philippi. We pray that you would do a mighty work in Christ Bible Church and through Christ Bible Church. And we ask that you would take our lives and use us however you see fit. Maybe we're comfortable. Maybe we like our little bubbles and we don't want to move. And we pray that you would push us, force us out of that. And I praise you for everybody in this room I know that they desire to be used by you and already have been. And I pray with Paul that they would excel still more. Pray that we'd be able to look back years from now and see our beginning was very similar to that of the church in Philippi. And ultimately, everyone would be able to see it was God and God alone who opened their eyes. So God, use us. May we be faithful. And I pray as we sing this last song, we would sing a song of consecration. This would truly be the prayer of our hearts and our souls. Use us however you see fit, whether that's through suffering to be an example of joy in the midst of trial and pain, whether that's riches to be an example of contentment and giving away and sacrifice. God, use us however you see fit for your glory and the renown of your name, we pray.